0: Hi, this is Pam Johnson. Today I will be discussing pancreatic surgery with emphasis on pre- and post-operative CT imaging. Surgical resection is necessary for the definitive treatment of pancreatic cancer regardless of whether it's adenocarcinoma or malignant neuroendocrine tumor. CT is essential for pre- and post-operative management of these patients. And we've advanced beyond the lesion detection and determination of resectability as a result of the advances in CT technology that have improved resolution. Additionally, owing to newer surgical techniques, the role of CT has expanded. In this talk, I'm going to review the role of CT for identification of pancreatic tumors, determining resectability, surgical procedure planning, identifying Normal postoperative findings versus postoperative complications, and the post treatment surveillance for a current tumor. Beginning with identification of pancreatic tumors, we have a number of different imaging modalities available. Literature has suggested, this is an older paper from 2005, that CT is superior to MRI and transabdominal ultrasound. MR has certain advantages, which include the absence of radiation exposure, and the fact that scans can be performed without administration of iodinated contrast. Uh, As we all know, endoscopic ultrasound is an invasive procedure, and PET-CT has a limited role in the imaging of these patients that I will discuss a little bit later. This is a newer paper published in 2011 in Radiology that compared 64-slice CT to 3-Tesla MRI. And I think it's really essential when you're reviewing articles to look at the technology that was used because there are big differences between 4-slice, 16-slice, and even 64-slice and beyond um, with big improvements in spatial, temporal, and contrast resolution. So results that are pertinent to today are those as reported in this paper using the most current technology for both CT and MR. What they found in this study was that there was no significant difference between CT and MR for tumor detection in terms of specificity and sensitivity, and there was no difference in terms of the ability to determine which patients were resectable when comparing CT and MR. Here. Here's a, a separate paper that compares CT and endoscopic ultrasound in patients with neuroendocrine tumors. This is also a recently published paper, but important to recognize that they had 217 patients who were imaged between 1984 and 2009, which reflects a wide range of different CT technology over the years. The results from this paper showed that endoscopic ultrasound was more sensitive than CT, particularly for insulinoma. And endoscopic ultrasound identified 20 out of 22 CT-negative tumors. However, important to note, they then stratified the cases by CT technology, and comparison shows that um, I only listed the four and 16 and 64-slice CT results, but as you can see, as we got into more advanced CT scanners with the 16 and 64-slice, the sensitivity for CT was 89%, very similar to the endoscopic ultrasound. With respect to another paper comparing CT and endoscopic ultrasound in 62 patients with pancreatic cancer, this is a paper from 2004, CT had the highest accuracy Among multiple different imaging modalities, including MRI, angiography, and endoscopic ultrasound, CT was most accurate for assessing the extent of primary tumor, local regional extension, vascular invasion, distant metastases, TNM staging, and resectability. Endoscopic ultrasound in this series was more accurate for delineating the size of the tumor and for identifying lymph node involvement. So let's, uh, let's take a moment now and discuss PET-CT, because uh, more patients are being imaged with PET-CT, particularly uh, we've seen cases that follow up trying to determine whether there's recurrent disease. This is a study of 56 patients who had a negative PET-CT, and it turned out that of these patients, 25% of them actually had malignancy, including adenocarcinoma in an IPMN ductal adenocarcinoma, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, and ampullary cancer. So from this paper, we learned that that, uh, PET-CT has a negative predictive value of 75%. And it's important to recognize that not all tumors will be identified. There are tumor markers that can be measured for both diagnosis of cancer at the onset and for identification of recurrence. These include CA 19.9, which has been uh, used widely. More recently, there's CA 242. Studies suggest that this may be better than CA 19.9. It has a sensitivity and specificity for identifying pancreatic cancer of 60%. Some studies have shown that there are lower survival rates. If the patient has a positive CA 242 and the Patients with levels greater than 100 have a poorer outcome among those with unresectable disease. So that's a basic review of the different imaging modalities for identifying pancreatic tumors. I'd like to move on to a discussion of determining resectability in these patients. Overall survival for patients with pancreatic cancer is four percent at five years. The unresectable patients have survival rates of less than one percent. Um, a, a certain percentage, up to twenty percent, are resectable. And among these patients, the survival at five years can be as high as twenty percent. So it's very important to identify the patients that are candidates for surgical resection. How accurate is CT? This is a, um, a paper, a review article, over ten-year period. That showed that the negative predictive value was 87% for resectability and the accuracy in predicting resectability can be as high as 95%. It's an excellent imaging tool. We have a very large population of patients who come to Hopkins with pancreatic cancer. CT is our primary imaging modality. In uh, 1997, it was shown in this paper in AJR the importance of performing CT angiography in conjunction with axial CT, because this study showed a an increase from 70% to 96% for negative predictive value to determine resectable tumor um, when CT angiography was used in comparison to just axial images alone. Here at Hopkins, we do. Uh, Standard dual phase interpretation with axial and MPRs, and in addition, each of these patients undergoes dedicated 3D rendering with volume rendering, MIP, and interactive MPR. We feel that this is the optimal way to evaluate these patients both preoperatively and postoperatively. In terms of resectability, this was an older paper showing that CT and MR are similar in sensitivity, which has been substantiated by the more recent paper that I discussed earlier, published in 2011. In comparing CT with endoscopic ultrasound for resectability, this study showed that both modalities were correct in more than half of the cases. There were some cases where CT was correct and endoscopic ultrasound was not, but there were also a small percentage of cases where only endoscopic ultrasound was correct. The big question today is whether it's not just simply whether the patient is resectable or non-resectable. We now have a category of borderline resectable. And it's important to recognize these patients because they have a different algorithm. So just a quick quiz question. Which of the following patients is potentially resectable. A patient with celiac encasement by a pancreatic body mass, patient with SMA encasement by a pancreatic head mass, short segment SMV encasement at the confluence, no vascular encasement but isolated omental implant, or A and C. And the answer at the present time in in a high-volume center like ours is that patient A, who has celiac encasement by a pancreatic body mass and patient C with a short segment SMV encasement at the confluence are potentially resectable. So let's discuss how we define non-resectability. This includes patients with superior mesenteric artery or celiac artery encasement, which on CT is identified by more than 50% of tumor surrounding, of tumor surrounding more than 50% of the vessel perimeter. Secondary signs include deformation of the vessel, such as beating and narrowing. Unresectable portal or superior mesenteric vein involvement is uh, non-resectability. Patients with distant metastases, either liver or lung, and peritoneal spread of disease. These are not surgical candidates. So what is resectable venous involvement? So resectable venous involvement is venous involvement that can be treated by resection and uh, reconstruction of the portal vein or superior mesenteric vein segment. Ideally, the involved segment is downstream from the entry of the jejunal branches, which means cephalid, and the segment is less than 2 centimeters in length. There are some different definitions of borderline resectability depending on the institution. The NCCN defines this as severe impingement of the portal or superior mesenteric vein, less than 180 degree involvement of the superior mesenteric artery, Reconstructible encasement of the hepatic artery and a short segment, reconstructible occlusion of the superior mesenteric vein. MD Anderson has defined borderline resectability as abutment or encasement of a short segment of the hepatic artery, less than 180 degree abutment of the celiac and superior mesenteric arteries, and reconstructible portal vein superior mesenteric vein involvement. Additionally, publishes a consensus statement pertaining to borderline resectability of the portal vein SMV. This includes tumor-associated deformity, less than 180 degrees abutment, and reconstructable short segment occlusion. This photo is from a paper that was published in 1992, and I think it's it's, uh, interesting to note that it may prove that the configuration of the venous involvement has some predictive value. And specifically, patients who have at um, abnormality that is only involving one side of the portal vein have a better outcome than those who have circumferential involvement by tumor. So I think that these are important things to include in your dictation to provide, it's essential to provide a detailed dictation describing the tumor, describing the relationship to the arteries and veins, recognizing that different institutions have different thresholds for resectability, and, and tailoring your report to your surgeon's practice so um, the, to provide these patients with the best of possible outcomes in terms of those who may be resectable and amenable to venous reconstruction. So, before I stop, I'd like to review a few additional um, things that we should be looking at on CT that we don't talk about very often, but which are important for procedure planning. Beginning with uh, vascular anomalies, vascular pathology, evaluation of lymph nodes, and the time interval between CT and surgery. After this, I'm going to discuss the different surgical procedures that are performed at present. So... It's very important to look closely at the celiac and the superior mesenteric artery, not just for tumor involvement, but for the presence of vascular anomalies or the presence of additional pathology not related to the tumor. Significant vascular anomalies that uh, may complicate surgery include the presence of a replaced common hepatic artery from the superior mesenteric artery. In these patients, ligation can result in ischemia of the choledocojejunostomy and a bile leak. Patients who have a celiomesenteric trunk or a common origin of the celiac and SMA, this can be problematic because clamping can result in uh, ischemia. And patients who have celiac stenosis, whether it's due to atherosclerosis or median arcuate ligament syndrome. so. In terms of celiac stenosis, this is not uncommon. It may be present in as many as 25% of the population. It's usually caused by median arcuate ligament syndrome or atherosclerosis. And this becomes problematic during pancreatic because the blood supply to the pancreas, stomach, spleen, and liver is sustained by pancreatic collaterals, which will be ligated during the surgery. If this is identified preoperatively, the patient may actually undergo stenting or bypass. If it is not identified preoperatively, the surgeon detects this by clamping the gastroduodenal artery. If there's significant celiac stenosis, the patient will develop hepatic and gastric ischemia um, at this point. So really, ideally, we'd like to identify these patients prior to their surgery underscoring the importance of looking at those sagittal reconstructions to identify celiac and superior mesenteric artery stenosis that's going to impact the surgical procedure. With respect to identifying metastatic lymph nodes, here's a paper where they had 119 patients with adenocarcinoma. They defined nodal involvement as a long axis diameter of greater than 10 millimeters. And 13 patients were suspected to have metastases by imaging, All of them were negative at pathology. The six patients who did have metastatic lymph node involvement all had negative preoperative imaging. So take-home point here is that we have a very difficult time in identifying metastatic lymph nodes in these patients. One final thing to consider, and that is the time interval between the CT scan and the patient's surgery. This is a larger study of 487 patients. 18% of them had unanticipated metastatic disease at surgery, that the study showed that there was no significant difference if the patient's scan was performed at a university hospital or an outside hospital, um, but there was a difference in the rate of unanticipated metastatic disease depending on the time from the CT to the surgery. So if a patient's scan was performed between 14 and 20 days prior to surgery, the rate of unanticipated metastatic disease was 12%. Patients who scans were performed 35 to 41 days before the surgery, 35% of them had unanticipated metastatic disease. So very important to recognize um, that a current CT is necessary to identify the patients that are really surgically resectable. So I think I will stop there, and when I return, we're going to discuss the currently use surgical techniques here at Hopkins, the different range of surgeries, indications. This will be followed by a review of normal post-operative findings and the post-operative complications in these patients. Thank you very much.